The children are dismissed for children's church. So if you are in that demographic, you are welcome to depart. Uh, The rest of us, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18. We will find ourselves in John chapter 18, working our way through the denial of Peter, the betrayal of Peter. We will see that Jesus is not just betrayed by um, Peter, but he's betrayed also by his nation, by the people that um, we're supposed to protect, the people who are supposed to be a light. Um, Jesus is betrayed. Um, Let me ask you this, because this is a a heavy topic today. What does betrayal look like for us? Now, I would imagine that everyone here, uh, with the exception of maybe the the very youngest of us, um, has experienced betrayal in our lives, Um, perhaps from a spouse perhaps from a parent, from a friend, from another Christian. Those are difficult things. Uh, In an article uh, by Alistair Groves, he, he writes this, are you struggling to trust someone because that person has hurt you and you are worried it will happen again? Maybe the hurt was devastating, was a devastating single event. A spouse had an affair. A friend betrayed a very sensitive secret or a coworker stabbed you in the back. Or maybe the break in trust comes from a long pattern of small injuries. A mother who never pursued you or showed interest in your feelings, or a spouse who has been, con- who has been content to be a distant roommate for years. These are like open wounds. You are constantly aware of the injury. The ache and the rawness keep you alert. I'm speaking of a metaphorical wound, but even in a literal sense, broken trust is also felt physically, living with the nagging question, will it happen again? Knots your stomach, squeezes your chest, and keeps your shoulders clenched. Few things have the power to consume one's waking moments like a strained or broken trust. The idea of broken trust for us, I, um, when when I have marriages that come in uh, to my office and, and I speak to, to men and women and oftentimes that, that trust has been broken, um, otherwise they don't come see me, right? People, I just want you to know this, that nobody schedules an appointment with me to tell me how great their marriage is going. It has never happened. I look forward to the day when somebody says, hey, we're doing great. Let me tell you about all the good things going on. People come in to talk about broken trust. And, and again, I say this, trust is lost quickly, just like that. Through some event, it can, it can also de- degrade or erode over time. But the only way that trust can be rebuilt is faithfulness over time. Faithfulness over time. That's when trust is built. And many of you have felt the sting of betrayal in your life. But many of you have also also been the betrayer in those relationships. Because we have felt the sting of betrayal and we have also betrayed others in our relationship. And what we find is that in this passage in John chapter 18, uh, we see this picture of, of a nation that is betraying Jesus, of Peter 
betraying Jesus and of Jesus always remaining faithful. If you are experiencing some sort of betrayal right now and you're in the midst of it, brothers and sisters, I want you to know this, that Jesus understands what you're going through. You can run to him and he will walk with you. Um, But it is a difficult thing, betrayal. So it's a heavy topic, but let's read the word of God. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 12. You'll see this. John works back and forth between um, Peter's betrayal and the nation of Israel and Caiaphas, the high priest. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Are those who have heard me what I said to them? Are, are those who have heard me what I said to them? They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, "Is that how you answer the high priest?" And Jesus answered him, "If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me?" Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So here it is. We see that Jesus is being betrayed not only by the system of government uh, that he put into place, but also by his friends and disciples, specifically Peter. Now, a couple notes here that I'm not going to get into, but first of all, we don't really know who the other disciple is. If you look at verse 15 of John chapter 18, since that disciple was known to the high priest, there are actually two disciples that follow, Simon Peter and an unnamed disciple. I would say that our best guess is that that's probably the Apostle John uh, who wrote this book, because oftentimes he is the unnamed disciple throughout, of the, throughout this, and he is the eyewitness giving the account to us. It never specifies, we can't be sure of that, but by you know, tradition and antiquity and what we think, we think it's John, but we can't be sure. Just kind of laying that out there for you. But we find that these two um, statements are bound together. And what we find first is that, and I want to talk about this nation that has denied Jesus, has subjugated Jesus, and is now arresting Jesus. Now, what's interesting, 
Um, at least I think it's interesting. In, in verse 13, after the band of soldiers and the captain, they didn't lead Jesus to Caiaphas. They actually led him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of the high priest. Now, that's kind of interesting because what happened was Annas was the high priest at a time about 15 to 20 years earlier. And the Roman government, when the Roman government came in, they decided that they were not going to allow Annas to continue on as high priest. Well, they didn't recognize that once you were made a high priest in Israel, that was a lifelong appointment. So even though the Romans viewed Caiaphas as the high priest, the rest of the Jewish world or those believing Jews, still thought of Annas as the high priest. And Annas had so much control, as a matter of fact, that not only was uh, Annas's son was the high priest after him by Roman you know, dictate, but then another son, and then finally his, his son-in-law. And so Annas is really sort of the, the high priest, as it were. And then from Annas, he goes to Caiaphas. From Caiaphas, he goes to Pilate. From Pilate, he goes to Herod. And then Herod sends him back to Pilate. That's kind of where Jesus is being drugged back and forth, back and forth. And I want you to think about this. The, the, the God of the universe who set up the system of the priesthood is now being taken advantage of by that priesthood. The one who has given all the laws is now being unlawfully um, brought to trial. Now, um, this trial, uh, some commentators actually say this is more of a monkey trial, really, because this trial should never have happened. As a matter of fact, there, there are things woven in this story uh, that should never happen. First of all, we, le- we, we think about it in this way, is that this trial or this partial trial, first of all, it was Annas who was maybe the high priest, but maybe not, but it happened at night. And the Jewish law said, the Mishnah said, that no trials actually occur at night. It also said that no trial was meant to actually happen the day before a Sabbath, because oftentimes a trial might last two days, and that means it would cross over a Sabbath, or a holy day, or a feast day, and it was the Passover. And so they were never meant to actually have a trial at night, uh, close to the Sabbath, But we also find this, when when you look at um, what happens in verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Well, within the Jewish law, you were never allowed to directly ask the defendant a question. There were witnesses for, and there were witnesses against in the Jewish law. But you were never supposed to ask direct questions to the witness. So Annas, the high priest, or really the high priest in the, in the eyes of all the Jews, was doing something that was illegal in his um, legality or within the, the judicial system of the Jews. He also, um, if, if you notice that he actually asks Jesus questions, and Jesus' answer to him is this. And so sometimes we're like, well, why did Jesus actually speak to him in sort of a hostile manner? It's because Jesus knew the law. And so when he says in verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world, I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? The reason he says that is because Jesus knows that the high priest is not supposed to ask him any questions. Why do you ask me? Now, ask those who have heard me what I said to them, they know what I said. He's essentially saying, Follow the practice that you're meant to follow. Bring in the witnesses for me and bring in the witnesses against me. 
And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priests? Now again, in the midst of this, Jesus is being betrayed by a system that he began back in you know, the days of Moses, the giving of the Mosaic law. Now, I want you to think about this. Has there ever been a time where a system of government has betrayed you? If it hasn't happened yet, it might. But we also know that men take good systems, even the very best systems, and they bend them, and they warp them, and they twist them, and they use them to their advantage. We see that all the time. That we see systems that are being twisted for selfish gain. Now, I love the way that Jesus speaks, and that should also be uh, in a similar way because he's, he's earnest. He says, I have spoken out in the open. I have spoken all these things so that you can hear me. You know what I said. In a similar way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth says this, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I would hope that you and me, that we would do that, that we would stand openly, not trying to twist the word of God so that it becomes more appealing, but rather that we would be forthright and truthful, much like Jesus that our witness and our testimony to the world would be straightforward. That we're not trying to to twist it and trying to, to get it to fit into the world, but rather we're saying that we need to conform and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, everything that we believe. Now, not only was it a trial at night, not only was he asking questions like this, but it's, it's really, really interesting too, but that in the Jewish tradition, and this is not found here per se, but later on, when they unanimously condemn Jesus, that immediately means that there is a mistrial in the Jewish system. Because everybody who's the party that's defending as well as prosecuting are not only the, um, the prosecutors and the defendant, but they're also voting in the trial. So the Jews thought this way, if it was a unanimous vote, then it must be uh, some sort of underhanded trick to actually uh, prosecute someone. So when Jesus is unanimously prosecuted, it should have been immediately a mistrial, but it wasn't. I mean, all of these things, every system that was meant to actually protect became a system of harm and was twisted by men to actually prosecute Jesus. And that's a shame. Now, not only do we see that the nation was betraying Jesus, and not only do we see that the nation had had bought into this, but but the one that we see that that really makes us think about ourselves is that he's betrayed by his disciples. He's betrayed specifically by Peter. And this is um, a stark thing for us. Think, Think about this. He actually says that, you know, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times, Peter. But look at the way that Peter actually um, betrayed Jesus. The first was this. Um, so when Peter um, followed Jesus, and he did it with another disciple, they're in the courtyard. 
But Peter stood outside the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, I'm in verse 16, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, the servant girl at the door. Essentially, we're talking about the lowest servant in the house. The servant girl at the door, she actually questions Peter, and she says it with this rhetorical style so that you have to answer it in this way. Um, similar to like when your wife like, says something to you when you're newly married, like, you like this dinner, right? You know, you have to answer it in a certain way, right? I mean, it's a leading question if you got that right. I mean, there's no other way to say it. But she says to him, um, you also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. You see, what's, what's striking here is that Peter, it, th- think about this. We are not that far removed. We are hours removed from Jesus washing his feet. We, we are hours removed from John chapter 13. I mean, I know that we, that was a while ago for us, you know, but in John chapter 13, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And what Peter said to Jesus was that even though all should fall away, I will not. Even in the midst of this, we also see that Peter, I mean, Peter, and and earlier in John chapter 18, when all of the force comes, you know, when when the 300 people from the Roman cohort and the soldiers of Caiaphas come, um, Peter actually, with bold courage, takes a sword. I don't know where he got a sword. It's kind of like when you got kids with matches, you shouldn't do that with Peter. Or, you know, Barney Five should never have a gun. You know, he takes out a sword and he chops off the ear of Malchus, and then Jesus replaces the you know the ear or heals the ear. However, he does it. So Peter goes from a place of, of, I will never betray you. Nothing will keep me from following you. I'm going to take out the sword, and I'm going to stand against 300 members of, of the Navy SEALs. Let them come. Let them come. And yet, the servant girl at the door says, certainly you are with them. You're not one of them, are you? And he goes, I am not. Now, a little later, we see this as well. And look at verse 25. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming his, himself. Now, this is all outside in the courtyard of Annas, the high priest. So they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. Now, John uses this phrase, I believe, with great significance. Because the first two times that Peter says, um, were you with Jesus? He says, I am not. If you'll remember back in John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, when the Roman cohort comes up to Jesus and they said, and Jesus comes out in front and says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember what he says? He says, I am. In your Bibles, it'll say, I am he. It's ego a me. It's I am he. He's essentially saying, I am the covenant name of God in Exodus chapter 3. I am. And the first time he says it, all the Roman cohort falls down. And the second time, he actually says, I am he. You're here to get everybody. You're just going to take me right now. And so where Jesus is, I am, Peter is, I am not. Do you see that? Where we or I am not, Jesus is. Where we are faithless, he is faithful. Where we are unforgiving, he is completely forgiving. Where we are duplicitous, he is always full of integrity. Jesus never wavers. He always says, not my will, but my Father's will be done. But then the third time happens right after this. Look at verse um, 
26, it says, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and a rooster crowed. Now, in Matthew 26, we actually hear this. The first time is with the servant girl. The second time is with some guys. The third time in Matthew 26, it says that Peter actually uttered a curse. So he basically says, Raza, frana, rana, rana. All right, you know, that's my best option right now. And he says, I am not. So he begins, so think about this. I want you to think about it. There's so many things that we can learn from this, but let, let me give you a couple things. So think about this. Peter goes from, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will stand with you. I will bear the sword. I will cut off ears. I will do whatever. And all of a sudden, now he's denying Jesus three times. Now, there's a couple things I want you to learn from this, or at least I think. First is this. Notice how Peter's sin builds upon itself. And it becomes easier to sin once we allow sin to rule and master us. It becomes easier to justify what we're doing. It becomes easier to say, well, I might not do that again, but, but if I do, it's not that big a deal. Let me give you some examples of that. Cheating on your taxes. You do it once, you don't get caught, it becomes easier to do it the second time. It becomes easier and easier and easier. How about stealing small things from work? You could steal, you know, take things, and it just becomes a habit. Small lies to your spouse about your spending habits. Eventually, it becomes easier for us to not believe in the transforming power of the gospel because we don't see any change within us. We see all of that, that, that this, there's this building effect that occurs when we have this, this sin, this transgression of God's law, this denial of Jesus, this betrayal of our faith. How, how about this one? Um, in the midst of you know, office, workplace, somebody denies Christ or does something that impugns the name of Christ or his followers, and you don't say anything, and then it just becomes one of those things that you just never say. I mean, that happens. And what happens in the midst of our own sinfulness is that sin has a numbing effect on the life of a believer. It begin, begins to numb or it begins to make us cold with regard to our affections towards the Lord Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. When, when we allow our sin to continue on, we, we cease to read our Bibles. We cease to pray to our Father in heaven. We cease to associate with the people of God. We cease to worship him as he commands and delights in. We see all of that happening. There's this, just this gradual progression that occurs. And you see it in your own life. The other thing I want you to think about this is, is how easy it is from going from a spiritual high to a spiritual low how easy it is to go from defending and to being a defense of our Savior to being offensive towards Him. I mean, this is a picture for us, and it's a warning to us. And, and, and oftentimes, I mean, some of you have, have been to places like, um, like a youth camp or you've been on a mission trip, and, and when you're on those trips, I mean, there's something that, that the Lord does that is wonderful, I mean, not all the time, but you've been there, right? Like, all of a sudden, you go, like, I feel so close. I'm communing with the Lord. It's wonderful. Um, even even last, um, last summer, I, I, um, 
I remember um, one of our students who went on the Costa Rica trip said, I put away my phone and it was a glorious week for me. I actually read my Bible, I actually was praying more, all of these things. And then what happens when you come back, if you're not guarding your heart, if you're not diligently pursuing those things, uh, what happens is you slide back into old habits, you know, deceitful habits, habits that will actually cause you to become numb to the things of God. The things that um, once delighted your soul, you begin to push off. I get worried about people who begin to push off fellowship and push off service and push off reading their Bibles and push off prayer. We see that there's this, this accumulative effect of sin in our lives and it's a dangerous place to be. But what we find um, is again that we see that even though we are the I am not, <laughs> that Jesus is the true I am. Because the thing that happens, and we won't get there today, but we'll get there in a few weeks, is you see, after the threefold denial of Peter, of his Savior, we see that Jesus restores Peter. We see that Peter, in the midst of uh, being on the beach, when he sees Jesus, he actually takes off his, you know, he strips down and he runs to Jesus. And Jesus restores him three different times at the end of the Gospel of John. Brothers and sisters, I want to say that that is so encouraging to me. Because in the midst of me denying Christ, and again, I deny Christ uh, with my sin and thought, word, and deed every day, that Jesus welcomes us back into fellowship with him. Uh, if, If you had a friend... A faithful friend who at your deepest difficulty in life betrayed you, denied you three different times, I'm here to tell you I would not treat him like Jesus. I would probably push him off and and be very unforgiving. I would probably violate the ninth commandment that we talked about over and over again as I talked about how despicable this person was. But you know what? Jesus doesn't do that. Because he is the great I am, he is not the great I am not. Because what Jesus does is Jesus goes to the cross and he dies for all of those deniers of himself. Isn't that good news? That is glorious news for us. You know, the the thing about um, Peter is that his sin actually... um, his sin was, was showing who he really was or what was deep within him. And, and again, I, and I've said this over and over again uh, for men especially, is that oftentimes a man's greatest fear is that he will be found out. That he will be found out that he is not the man that he portrays himself to be. That he will be found out to be a man who is not as faithful, not as godly, not as courageous, not as disciplined, not as adept at his job, not as intelligent as he put. All of these things, that is what a man truly, truly fears being found out. Now, um, and because of that, because of that fear, it often stunts us. 
And what I mean by that is that it cripples our, our, our spirituality. It, it cripples our ability to abide with Jesus because what Jesus says is all of those things that you think are keeping you from me, I love you despite those things. I went to the cross for all of those things. You're, you're broken, you're flawed, you make terrible decisions, but I always make the right decisions and I will welcome you back into fellowship. Would you please come? So let, let, me, let me take a moment just because I got the microphone and you don't. Um, men, let me speak to men for a second. Men, would you please pray with your wives? Husbands, please pray with your wives. If you don't have a wife, that's okay. Then I need men to be in the word of God. And I need men praying now so that someday, if they get married, they will actually pray with their wives. Men, please do this. And part of the reason that you don't do it is you don't know how to start. Here's how you start. How can I pray for you? You can write it down, okay? But it's not hard. Men, please do this. I'm telling you, godly women want their husbands to pray with and for them deeply. Go home and ask your wife, is that, do you want me to pray with you more? Do you want me to lead you? How can I do that? Just ask, how can I pray with you? And then after she says it, you pray it. It's not rocket science. It's not hard. And yet I'm telling you, the enemy wants to do everything he can for you not to pray with your spouse. Anyway, let me get back to the sermon. I was brought to you by pastors hoping men grow up and lead their families. Dot com, whatever that might be, all right? Um, what we find, too, is, um, is, is in the midst of this, this um, the idea of, of rebuilding trust. Um, you know, sometimes the hardest hurdle you know, and, and again, I'm talking about relationships. I'm talking about us being Jesus to other people and actually forgiving other people. Have you been betrayed? Then, then brothers and sisters, I'm calling you to an act of forgiveness. Please. But the hardest hurdle sometimes when you've been betrayed, let me, let me read this, and I, I think this is really profound. The hardest hurdle is oftentimes wanting to rebuild trust. Some of you, or have been betrayed, and you don't want that trust to be rebuilt. Um, again, this article by Alistair Grove says this, the hardest hurdle, wanting to rebuild trust. I remember the first time I realized that if I were in the shoes of the woman I was talking to, I would probably not want my spouse to change and become a kinder man. Why? Because if he did, she would feel obligated to re-engage with him, to be vulnerable, and to even reawaken hope for a different and closer marriage. But for so many years, his harsh words, demeaning tone, petty selfishness, guilt trips, and pressuring tactics had worn on her. She was just beginning to realize how destructive and oppressive her husband had been in their marriage. Part of her feared him. Part of her hated him. Part of her desperately wanted his affection and simple fondness for her as a person. And part of her was just done. Done with riding the roller coaster of his emotions, the angst in her own heart during the good or easy times, knowing the other shoe would always drop at some point. I could feel it. I could see the world through her eyes. The prospect of a long marathon toward trustworthiness was wearisome beyond words. Better to shut down 
than to hope for change. Brothers and sisters, I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't do that. I'm so grateful to our Savior who welcomes us, those of us who deny him with our actions and our words. And again, when, Jesus, when, when Peter denied him a third time, there was a crowing of the rooster. Now, that is significant uh, in this way that all over uh, in places in Europe, and actually there's actually a, a church in Jerusalem, rather than a cross on a steeple, there's actually a rooster on top of that church. And there's often there for two reasons. The first is this, is to distinguish between a Catholic and a Protestant church. Sometimes Protestant churches would put a rooster on top so that they could distinguish themselves from the Catholic church. The second reason, though, and the reason why they did that was they wanted everyone who would see the church on the village green, every time they would look to the church and they would see the rooster, they would want them to ask themselves this question, have I denied Jesus today or am I denying him right now? You know, the beauty of the gospel is one of reconciliation. It's one of making uh, followers of Jesus adopted children from those who would deny and betray him. And we have signs and seals of the covenant of grace. And, and before us today, we have this, this sign and seal known as communion, this, this bread which represents his body given for you. And this cup representing the new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of sins. This represents all that Jesus has done. Think about this. When we come, when we come to the table, we come as those who have been reconciled to the Father through the blood and broken body of Jesus. All that Jesus did was to reconcile us. Those of us who deny Jesus every day, Jesus welcomes us and he says, believe and trust all the more. I forgive you. I love you. Only in Christ do we find forgiveness and love. It's interesting, in, in John, or, or, I'm sorry, in, in Paul, when he writes his words of institution, of all the things that he could say, he says this. Um, notice what it says in verse 23 of John, or, um, 1 Corinthians 11. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also did deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. Think about this. He says, on the night when he was betrayed. He didn't say, on the night he washed the disciples' feet. On the night he was struck by the servant of the priest. On the night that he actually was being stricken and sent to the cross. He says, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, why do we remember Jesus in the midst of the supper? Because it is only in Christ that we find purpose and love and forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, have you, be, have you betrayed Christ this week? Then this table is for you. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that only Christ can save you? Then this table is for you. If you're unsure as to who Jesus is, if you're not sure about what this table represents, then I would ask that you would find an elder and they can explain it to you. Would you pray with me? 
Father in heaven, we are so grateful for this table that you lay before us. A table which signifies reconciliation, a table which signifies forgiveness, a table which signifies our adoption. And all of that is possible because of what Jesus has done for us. For Father, in Christ, we are now your children. So Father, as we come, Father, we acknowledge that we betray you, that we deny you, that we don't do things that we should do, that we often hide from you, much like Adam did. But Father, in Christ, we find great peace with you. And I pray, Lord, that you would show up, that you would pour forth grace upon us, grace upon grace upon grace, because we desperately need it. Father, show up. Father, you, this will always be juice, this will always be bread, but Father, you do show up spiritually to encourage your children. So Father, help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.